0: Today, I'll be reading from uh, 1 Peter 2:11 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The word of the Lord. Thanks, I'm back. Hello. What's good? What's good? Some of my younger, hipper friends, uh, they they use it as a phrase, right? What's good? What's good? I don't know what that means. I'm too old for that. But uh, I don't mean it that way. But I mean what is actually good? What's the definition of good? There's a phrase called a mondegren, and that's when we mishear or misuse a word. We're using it, but we're not using it correctly. This happens in song lyrics. Have you ever sung a song lyric and it's wrong and you don't know it's wrong? You're just bolted you're belted it out and somebody's like, that's not the song, that's not, what are you, what are you singing right now? Uh, uh, the, the song Jotty Dash wrote, I can see clearly now. You may, do you know that song? I can see clearly now the rain has come. A lot of people here, I can see clearly now the rain is gone. And the rain didn't go anywhere, if you think that's what it is, is, is rain. Uh, my wife, uh, she, uh, I don't see her here, so I think I can share this story. Um, she, she used to, uh, the Elton John song, A Hold Me Closer, Tiny Dancer, she thought it was Hold Me Closer, Tony Danza. And so... <laughs> I think she kind of had a crush on Tony Danza, to be honest. All the younger people are like, who's Tony Danza? I don't even know who that, watch Who's the Boss. I think you could watch it. Any Princess Bride fans here? You know that great scene where uh, 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 Vicini keeps saying, uh, inconceivable, you know, that kind of thing? And uh, uh, the uh, Indigo says, you keep using that word, I do not think you know what it means. That great, it's near the end of the movie. And I think that a lot, I do that, but I think that a lot What I hear people, especially in church world, use a certain word, I'm like, yeah, that's not what that means. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. You don't wanna be that guy in the room. So what's good? What's good? What, what, what does it mean? And we're gonna talk a lot about that today. We're in the fourth week of a series on 1 Peter, Strangers in a Strange Land. Peter's writing AD 62, right before his death, his own martyrdom, to a group of churches in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And he's writing to these churches that are, that are getting heat, they're getting persecution for the decision they've made to follow King Jesus. Jews, a growing number of Gentiles, say we're bowing the knee to Jesus and they're, they're getting persecution, physical, some of them are losing their lives, but they're all being socially ostracized. No one's coming to their businesses anymore, they're not invited to family gatherings, they're not going to the guild associations anymore. Because of their radical decision, their strange decision, to follow Jesus as Savior and King. They're getting discouraged. They hear Peter's in prison and Paul's in prison. And is this whole, oh, the wheel's coming off is kind of what they're thinking. And Peter writes them this letter and said, you have a living hope. And an inheritance doesn't perish or spoil or fade. Jesus is your cornerstone. Build your life on him. He's the living stone. You're the temple. So he's kind of just, he's like, you go, you got this. And then we get to this, this pivotal passage today that we're gonna look at. As we did uh, last week with Cornerstone a little bit, uh, some of my job as a communicator is when we're reading scripture, the Bible's not written to us but for us, we miss a lot. And that doesn't mean you're dumb or I'm done. It's tons of cultural difference, language. And my job a lot of times is like helping bridge those divides. I wanna get as close as we can to when we read the scripture, you hear it and you understand it the same way the original listeners would have heard it or understood it. Does that make sense? All right, so I wanna rally around this word good because that is the key word in the text that Stuart read so that when you hear it, it pops for you in the same way it will pop for them. So let's talk about goodness in scripture. My professor who I'm studying under, Scott McKnight, he wrote a whole book on goodness. He's kind of a goodness scholar. It's the word in the Hebrew, and then its translations in the Greek are used over 700 times. Scott would say the Bible, your Bibles as you're looking at them, it's a book of goodness, a book of tov. Here's one example from Amos. Seek good, seek tov, not evil that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil and love good and maintain justice in the courts." So Tov, when, if I were to ask you um, to like, define goodness for me, I'm guessing, but I would guess the vast majority of us would define it with some kind of a moral definition. You'd say it's about being good. That's how we use it typically um, when we say, I'm a good person. Or they're a good person. If you're making fun of somebody, perhaps you would never do that. I'm sure you might say, you're a goody two-shoes. Have you heard that? If you have an animal, particularly a dog, and you're like, good dog, then the dog's not tearing stuff up and peeing on the floor, probably. It's behaving. So that's how we think about it. That's how we use it. Well, here's the problem. That's not typically how the word is used in the Bible. So the word tov, it can mean moral goodness. Occasionally, it's used that way. But the heart of the word uh, means to be well-crafted, for something to work the way it's supposed to work. You could even translate it as beauty. A uh, tove or goodness is a well-played concert. It's a coordinated golf swing. My golf swing is not tove at all. It's the opposite. It's evil by golf swing. Um, tove is the right word at the right time. It's the Sistine Chapel. It's a uh, well-crafted or planned event. It's a well-cooked meal. It's a math equation. It's uh, when parents parent the way they're supposed to parent, and churches run the way they're supposed to work. That's tove. It's beautiful. It's working the way it's supposed to work. Are you following this? It's different than how we would normally get it. So we're, if we don't understand that, we miss things that Peter is saying. So let's look uh, briefly at Tove or, or, tov or goodness in scripture. What does scripture say about it? We're gonna spend a couple minutes on this and then we're gonna come back and plug it all into our passage. And hopefully we're like, oh, I see things I didn't see before. What does scripture say about goodness? Well, God is good. That's a foundational element of goodness. God is the source of all good. Exodus 33, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. This is when he's revealing himself to Moses. God's like, here I am. And God reveals to God as goodness, collectively. God's very name is connected to goodness. The psalmist writes, you are good and what you do is good. Uh, The most frequent anthem in all of Scripture for God's people, if there's one, a song, a best hit, you know, when they gathered, what worship song did they sing again and again and again? It's found in Psalm 107, Psalm 136, all over the New Testament. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And God's chesed, his faithful love, his love does not quit, endures forever, God's not only a source of all, uh, God's not only good, but God's the source of all good. King David says, how abundant are the good things that you've stored up for those who fear you. Psalm 23, you may know that one. David ends by saying, the Lord, Yahweh, will chase us with goodness all the days of our life. You may know Psalm 84, it's better to spend one day in the house of the Lord than a thousand elsewhere, that word better is more good. It's tov, that's the word. It's, it's, it's better, it's, it's more good to spend one iota of a second in God's presence than doing anything else you can imagine. So this word is all over the place. God is good, uh, what God creates is good. You come to the early chapters of Genesis and there's this primordial soup, this darkness and it's chaotic. That's how the writers want us to understand it. Evil is already there. Evil, evil is already present in the soup and it's like lurking around in there and bubbling up. And God comes, I always picture God as an artist with a table laid out and art supplies all over the table. And God's taking these art supplies and creating and making new and poof, and as God does this, each time God creates, God says, it is what? Tove, It's good. It's good. This is how it's supposed to work. Bird, yes, that's what I wanted. Fish, yes, exactly what I wanted. That tree, whoo. And then God takes the dust of the earth and, whew, breathes life and creates you, creates me. And then God says, it is, it is very good, Mwah. And some of you need to hear that today. I need to hear that regularly. You're beautiful. I try to tell that to our girls. Uh, are they, do I think they're physically beautiful? Yes, I think that too. But I mean something deeper than that when I say that to them. You're loved, you're well-crafted by God. There's no one that's made, ever been made like you. You're beautiful. You're exactly how God wants, you're good. So God is good, everything God creates is good, And then I think this last little point that we see in Scripture, that uh, only God can determine what is good. Post-Enlightenment philosophy, the way the world thinks, you could sum it up with the word secular humanism. And so secular humanism is human-centric. It cuts God out of the equation. So here you might, this seeps into our thinking, even as followers of Jesus, you might think this is good when you hear this. If I were to say, who determines what is good? You'd be like, I do. I do, or you do, you should be free to say what's good, and you should be free, and you should be free to say, it sounds really great, it doesn't work. <laughs> why does it not work? Because we're so broken, and we can always see so many things, and we're not God. And what happens if you, and then you think good is two different things, and they conflict? Who arbitrates? Who do, all right? This is why our world is mass chaos right now. It sounds really good, but it doesn't work. We can't determine good by looking internally, We determine good by looking at God who is good and establishes what is good and tells us what is good. God created how things are meant to work and we must look to God to determine. Final point, what does the Bible say about goodness? And then we're gonna plug it back into 1 Peter. Uh, We're told throughout all of scripture that followers of Jesus are called to do good. So here's some examples. In Galatians, Paul tells the church to not become weary in doing good. At some point, they'll reap a harvest. He tells the church at Thessalonica to never tire of doing good. He tells young Pastor Titus to devote himself to doing what is good. The author of Hebrews tells us to not forget to do good. James, the brother of Jesus, says, wise people are those who live a good life. Jesus himself, in his most famous sermon, says in the same way, Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. One day, very soon, because time flies, when we all shed our earth suits and we enter glory saved by God's grace and whatever that looks like, and we're face to face with God, the ultimate pronouncement of a life well lived, as we understand in the scripture, is for Jesus to look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's everywhere. As followers of Jesus, we're we're called to do good. Now, we've learned a lot about this word goodness. Well, let's plug it back into 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, you can open up your Bibles. You you might have already forgotten what, what it was. There's two simple verses. 1 Peter scholars will say these two verses are the pivotal verses of the entire letter. Pivotal because they're important, yes. Also, pivotal literally because they're kind of like holding the two ends of the book together, right? You open it up and there it is, right? They're right here in the binding. And so, the first verse, verse 11, Peter's looking back and he refers to them, he's reminding them that you are foreigners and exiles. That's who you are now that you follow Jesus. You're of a kingdom that's far beyond this place. You're strange. You're gonna be strange. That's how it is. And as strangers, you're to abstain from sinful behavior. As Denise preached a couple weeks ago, you're to live holy lives, set apart lives. Not perfect, right? Holy, set apart. As you follow King Jesus, how you live and the values you hold will appear to the majority of people to be weird. You'll be weirdos, right? In the best possible way. And they were experiencing that. You may experience that. We probably should more than we do. So that's the first part and then he's saying, now in light of that, you're to go out and live a certain way. Verse 12 launches us into the rest of the letter and for the rest of the letter, Peter's gonna be challenging us and the church to live and be people of goodness. So this is what he said, he's introducing this idea. He, he tells him to live such good lives Amongst the pagans, pagans isn't an offensive term, that's just a a Greek word that means people other than followers of Jesus, people that don't follow Jesus. So live such, there's our word good, not, remember, not morally upstanding, although that's part of it, well-crafted, beautiful lives amongst the pagans, that when you are accused of doing wrong, your beautiful lives are so beautiful, you don't even have to respond. What he tells them, I uh, I love sports. I think most of you know that. I love watching sports, Uh, and one of my favorite sports moments is when a team comes in and they're on the road, and uh, the crowd's going nuts. They're yelling, and screaming, and saying mean things about their family. They're a loser. They're going to fail, and all right. I mean, there's that energy, right? And then somebody from that opposing team. Steps up and shows out and wins the game. It has like, and it's deathly silent. You know, are you familiar with this? And I love when one of those players that does that scores a touchdown, hits a three pointer, it's stone cold silence, and they turn to the crowd and they go, <laughs> Love it! <laughs> love it! Except if it's my team that loses, I, that, uh, that I hate it. No comments about the Cowboys today. Uh, So I think that's a little bit, and it's not an ego thing that Peter's saying. We as followers of Jesus spend so much time running our mouths, just talking and talking and being defensive and arguing. There's a place for articulating the gospel, talking about Jesus, answering questions, yes. But that seems to be most of what we do. And that's not what Peter tells them. We can't even imagine how tough it was. You think America's tough right now for followers of Jesus? You can't even imagine this. And he's like, look, I know it's coming for you. I know you're losing your homes and your businesses and some of your lives. Don't fight back. Don't, don't do evil. <laughs> Live beautiful lives. Live and be people of goodness. So when they come for you, it's shh. What is a good life? Peter's gonna spend the rest of the letter explaining it, but he gives us a little teaser here in the verses that follow what was read. Verse 13, chapter two, "'Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake "'to every human authority, "'whether to the emperor as supreme authority "'or to governors who are sent by him "'to punish those who do wrong "'and to commend those who do right. "'For it is God's will that by,' here it is, "'doing good, you should silence "'the ignorant talk of foolish people. "'Live as free people, "'but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. "'Live as God's slaves.' Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. So what? (laughs) So what? This is where we end every week, isn't it? That's nice stuff about goodness and toad, blah, blah, blah. So what? What does this mean for our church? What does this mean for our lives? As you live here today and you go back into a crazy world that's been very depressing these last couple weeks for everyone globally, what does it look like to live as a community and a people of goodness? I would sum up everything I said today with this line. I would say a good life, a beautiful, a well-crafted life testifies, bears witness that the good news is actually good news. Because I think people that are watching the church and watching followers of Jesus often—I'm not trying to throw stones here or be judgmental—but I think they're often wondering, "Is it really good news? Is it really beautiful?" And uh, I, you know, I, I try to get in your heads, which is you know part of my job, as I'm preaching. Thinking, "What are you guys thinking?" So here's one thing I think you might be thinking. Growing up in church, we have this crazy thing over the last 50 years or so. It's relatively new. Where we feel like uh, the gospel, which literally means good news, uh, and good works are in opposition. So when you begin to talk about from the pulpit, like justice and doing right and good works, people are like, oh, we're getting away from the gospel. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm just going to lose my mind here. And this is what I mean. I want to be incredibly clear here. We, all of us, are only saved. We only stand before a holy God one day because of the good work of Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen? Unequivocally clear. None of us. I don't care how good a person you are. I don't care if you're, if you're challenging Mother Teresa's throne of righteousness. I don't care. We only stand before God one day because of the good work of King Jesus, and we sink our hope into that. So we are not saved by good works, but we are saved to good works. Do you understand the difference? It's very important. I think if the, the, the writers of scripture and the earliest followers of Jesus were to come and get a sniff of American Christianity over the last couple of decades, and they'd hear this kind of false dichotomy between the gospel of divorce, they're like, what are you talking about? It's absurd. It's insane. They would have questions about people who prayed a prayer when they are four or five, and, uh, and yet when they're 40 or 50 shows zero evidence that Jesus is a whole of their life in any way. They would have questions about that. Like, I don't know if the saving grace of God has gotten inside of them and reworked them. Like, they would see these two things fitting together as two sides of a coin. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote a whole book on this. He says, faith that is not accompanied by good work is useless. The Greek word for useless is useless. It's like a Greek joke. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to make a Greek joke. That's a I've summed this up over the years by saying, faith that does not work, does not work. Faith that does not work, does not work. Paul, if you you were to say, John, take me to a place in scripture that explains the gospel or the good news, I'd probably take you to Ephesians two. I wouldn't be alone in that. So Paul says this in Ephesians two, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Yes, not by works, so that no one can boast, but here we go. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. When Peter was explaining to Cornelius, you know, he's invited to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is this Gentile that wants to know about Jesus. Peter's explaining who Jesus was. He's kind of summing up the entire life and ministry of Jesus. And he says, Acts 10, 38, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power... In that Jesus went around doing good. That's it. That's the life of Jesus. He went around doing good. Beautiful. Well-crafted. Jesus showed us how it was supposed to work. He showed us what it was like to be human and to flourish. I am super, super annoyed that the word evangelical has been hijacked by fanatical extremists. <laughs> If you say that word nowadays, the connotation is bigotry and hatred and division. It's largely held by people that don't even go to church anymore. It's a heavily political thing. It just drives me nuts because it's such a beautiful word. If the earliest followers of Jesus would be like, are you evangelical, they'd be like, heck yeah, because the word evangelical is from the Greek, euangelion, good news. It meant people of the good news. Are we meant to be people of the good news? Yes. We, uh, you know, we see it as a criticism, almost a mocking when we call somebody a do-gooder. Followers of Jesus should be known as do-gooders. That's the very thing. This is the, what Peter is saying, what Jesus said, that our good works should be visible. Now you might be like, oh, I don't know about that, like it's that, that sounds egocentric. Yes, if you're doing good works so that people can see them so that you can receive glory and be lifted up, that's gross and evil. Let me be really clear. That's not what Peter's saying, and that's not what Jesus was saying. It's always tied to the glory of God. A good life is generated by the good news of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit in your life, producing fruit of the Spirit, gives glory to God. It testifies and bears witness that the good news is actually good news. The world needs that. St. Francis is one of my favorite quotes. He says preach Christ at all times and use words if necessary. We need that. We need that. My uh, my friend and professor Scott, I told you he wrote a book on goodness and we were having a conversation one time he's like he's like John my his daughter wrote it with him Laura. And he said we really struggled as we wrote this book on goodness on who to use for a human example. <laughs> he said because we could find people that right now their lives look really good but uh, I don't know what's there. What's in the closet? Right? It's so like we don't want to use it. So he said, We made a decision to only use dead people. <laughs> oh, that's kind of sad. And uh, like the chief story they, they, they told that the book is centered around is someone you may be familiar with uh, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. Do you guys, how many people watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood growing up? Yeah. Fred, uh, he, he was, uh, he had a, you know, I don't have to go with all the data about the show it for 1963 to 2001, 31 seasons. Uh, he won the Presidential Medal of Freedom, 30 honorary doctorates, on and on and on. He's an American icon uh, for good reason. He's a devoted, devoted follower of Jesus. He went to seminary, thought he was going to be a pastor, and then he kind of fell into this thing. And it became his, his mission field, he would call it. Uh, Fred would, every single morning of his life, get up at 4.30, and he would have an hour with God, an hour to be reminded who he was, for he went into the chaos of the world. In his office, he had the Greek word for grace, and he had the Hebrew word to remind him that he was God's beloved. So he'd be anchored, and then he said every single day, he'd start and he'd go through his day and he'd imagine every person he knew he would interact with, guests on the show, staff people, producers coming in, and he would pray over them and there'd be a divine encounter. He crafted his show that it would be a place of goodness, a place that people be reminded that they're safe and God loves them, and that there's a better way, a place of goodness. Uh, Elizabeth Siemens, she's, she worked with Fred for many, many years, she's, she, this is a quote, that she, that she, she said this, he's not proud, he was not proud or arrogant, he didn't take anything or anyone for granted ever, he was flawed, but he was a really, really great man, and then watch this, and a good one, and a good one. I, uh, I read an article, I don't know, it was a couple of years ago, Washington Post reporter, and she said that she got tasked with writing an article on the documentary that came out in 2018 called Won't You Be My Neighbor, which I highly recommend. So she said she was kind of unfamiliar, I mean, she knew who he was, but she said to, so to do her work, she went back and she began to watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And so she, she has teenage kids and young kids and her husband, so she, says she would go into her bedroom kind of embarrassed and kind of put on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood on the TV And she said over time, over the days and the weeks, her kid would pop in to say something and they'd be like, what's this? What's this? And she said she would find each of them grabbing a seat and being drawn in magnetically to the show, which was the simplest, kind of courteous, lamest show by their standards, but a show of utter goodness there's a phenomenon that happened when they started to advertise the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, because there had been a gap, a generational gap between the, those of us who grew up with that show and, and now kind of bring it back. And, and the, doc, the, the trailer would come on in theaters, it would come on in living rooms at home, and they said it was a phenomenon. They begin to note that as just human adults watching this trailer, people would break down and start crying, just weeping just uncontrollably. (laughs) We took our entire staff in 2018 to it, and I'm not sure there was a dry eye, mine wasn't dry. This is the longing, the deep longing people have for goodness. Is there good, is God good? Is God beautiful, is the way of Jesus beautiful? Fred, though imperfect, exemplified that. What if instead of looking to complete knuckleheads, leading some places in the name of Jesus, God bless them, that may have all the gifts in the world and may be celebrities, we look to people like Fred Rogers. Like, you know, I mean, we, we have this really disturbing mindset that I, that, that I see on full display in Christendom of like, things are getting so bad and we gotta hunker down and, and we even might have to do evil, right? Do you hear this? you see this? People might not say it, but the, the ends justify the means logic, it's horrible, it's from the gates of hell. And we need to be saved from it. We're saying God needs us to be evil to get God's purposes done, that's ridiculous. Peter, in a context far more difficult than we can ever imagine, said the exact opposite. Yeah, you may be losing your lives, you may be losing your homes and your business, buck up, you have a living hope, you're built on the cornerstone, play the long game and be people of goodness. Shh so that when they accuse you of wrongdoing, they'll have nothing to say. Uh, Scott, he, he just wrote a, a translation of the New Testament and uh, he told me every time the word goodness came up in the Greek, and there's a couple different Greek words for goodness, he decided to always translate it as beautiful, beautiful. Let's, look at our, let's plug that into our, our passage. Live such beautiful lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your beautiful deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Dallas Willard says beauty is goodness made manifest to the senses. Taste and see, King David said. Taste and see that God is good. we were the body of Christ. And the followers of Jesus, the earliest ones, they were a hot mess in so many ways, but they listened to Peter. They listened. How do we know? Because they transformed the Roman Empire. The followers of Jesus who who were losing everything for the sake of Jesus, they would go, there's story after story of this, and rescue babies left on trash dumps. Adopt them into their homes, and then when they ran out of space in their homes, start orphanages. They would would go and they would, if if someone was was, uh, sick, They would nurse them back to health. There's stories of of the Black Plague entering enclosed cities and followers of Jesus in numerous numbers, entering the city while everyone else was leaving to nurse them back to health, risking their own lives, and then they started hospitals. They would build, the early followers of Jesus, they would build an extra room on called the Jesus room so that no stranger that came by would be left out in the cold. And then that became hostels, which became hotels, Followers of Jesus are the ones that begin to feed everyone, Christian, non Christian, it didn't matter to them. We didn't want anybody to be hungry in the town. That turned into soup kitchens. Followers of Jesus would educate anyone and everyone all over the world. You can't find a historic university in the world that wasn't started by followers of Jesus. You can't find it. They listened. All of that is beautiful. Dostoevsky said, Beauty will save the world. It did once, and it can again. I want to leave you with an image. I think when you're talking about goodness and beauty, I can give you Greek words and analysis and this and that, and it may make some difference. But I think images, stories are what lingers with us. In, uh, in 1992, the city of Sarajevo was, was, uh, was under siege by Serbian forces. It was the longest siege in modern warfare. Uh, there was 14,000 people that were killed during the siege of Sarajevo. So Sarajevo, it's surrounded by mountains, and so picture that, the armies and the snipers and the bombers for four years surrounded the city and the people inside of it. And they were slowly starving, and if they could get outside for anything, sniper fire, bombing, it was horrible. And so uh, one day, well into the siege, uh, there's just really hungry people, and there's one bakery in the entire city that was left open. So there's a group of people that day that were like, I, I, I gotta feed my family, Like, it doesn't matter, Like, I gotta go. So 22 of them got in a line at the bakery, and right at that instance, the bakery was bombed, totally destroyed, became a crater. All 22 people died. Uh, there's a man, Vijan Smalovic, he was in his apartment, he saw it happen. Uh, his neighbors, his friends, children, and he and other neighbors courageously ran and kind of pulled back the rubble, seeing that they could save anybody, they couldn't save anybody. The next day, uh, Vijan, he was the head celloist in the Sarajevo Opera. He, uh, he wore the exact suit that he would re- pre- wear to perform back in the day, where people would have to pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars to watch him. And he walked courageously out of his door with his cello and he climbed up the rubble and he sat there and he played uh, uh, Adagio in, in G minor for 22 minutes to, to honor the 22 people. And then he did it for the next 22 days. And then he just kept going. He went to cemeteries, he went to funerals. He, they were telling no one to go outside. This guy just took his cello and played in bomb craters. Here's the deal, even though the city was surrounded by snipers and bombers, no one ever fired at him once. What does it look like to be people that embody goodness, that are are made up of radical generosity and self-sacrificial love and, and, and and in, in forgiveness that, that never has an end or a bottom to it. What does it look like? This world so desperately needs that, it, it looks like playing a cello in a bomb crater. That's what it looks like. And the church is called to be that. A good life, a community of people. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine this new church? A community, communities of people devoted to following King Jesus and embodying beauty and goodness in our city what that could mean because a good life, a beautiful life, testifies and bears witness that the good news is actually good news. Amen? Amen. All right, let me pray for us. God, thank you for your faithfulness to your people, faithfulness to this church. Thank you that you don't just save us and tell us just sit out the rest and just wait till kingdom come, but we are a a really, really instrumental part of kingdom come. You've chosen to construct it in such a way that kingdom will not come without your people being people of goodness. And God, may we we be devoted as a church to preaching the gospel every day, 24-7, but we maybe only use words if necessary. May we go this week as led by your spirit for your glory, in our homes and our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our parks and our schools and the highways and the byways of our life. And may we be people of goodness for your glory, God, for your namesake. All God's people said? Amen. I'm going to bring my friend uh, Katie up. Part of the series is trying to really um, enter into the skin of people around the world who are like Peter's audience, the persecuted church. And so each Sunday, we're praying over a different area of the world. Katie's a really good friend. Uh, She's the Executive Director of Open Arms International, incredible organization, uh, worthy of your support. And uh, she goes to New Hope here, so she's gonna lead us
1: in prayer. Good morning. What a privilege it is to be here together without fear, of any kind of persecution or condemnation. We can walk through those doors without ever wondering if we're going to be shot at or bombed or ridiculed. It is by God's grace that we are here together and are able to share in the fellowship of being Christ's followers. 20 years ago, um, the Lord gave me the opportunity to start traveling the world and I've gotten to sit with some very, brave and courageous people that live in persecution every single day because of their faith. And I remember coming back from one trip and praying, God, I've never been persecuted like Paul. I've, I've never been persecuted like my friends that I'm visiting and sitting with and hearing their incredible stories. I want to experience that. Oh yeah, dumb. Dumb. I was the dumbest prayer I've ever prayed. I mean, he had a whole lot of that that he could answer with like straight away. There was no waiting on the Lord for that prayer to be answered. <laughs> but today, especially as I was sitting and praying and watching some of the news, my heart just breaks for what people are doing to each other in the name of a cause that they believe so much in, they're so convicted that they're willing to do these evil acts, like John said. And I felt so small, like, God, what am I gonna be able to do? What what kind of prayer can I pray? I just felt like I meant nothing in this big conflict. But you know, he hears every prayer and he knows exactly what he's doing. And he has such a great plan to turn it all for good. Somehow, some way, he will turn it for good and he can use us to be a part of that goodness. Hmm. Today I have the opportunity to tell you about the country of Yemen. And here's what it means to be a part of a persecuted church in Yemen. All Yemenis are affected by the humanitarian crisis caused by the ongoing civil war and violence from Islamic extremists. But Yemeni Christians are additionally vulnerable, experience discrimination, and do not receive emergency aid relief. Despite these oppressions, the gospel has flourished, and many Yemeni Muslims have come to know Christ. After converting to Christianity, however, they experience harassment, physical and mental abuse, sexual assault, as well as forced marriages. Christians from a Muslim background choose to practice their faith in secret because converting to Christianity from Islam is a crime that can be punishable by death. Christians worship secretly in homes or in small groups outdoors because they cannot gather together for fear that neighbors or their family will report them. Muslim families consider it extremely shameful for a family member to become a Christian. Even displaying Christian symbols could lead directly to imprisonment, physical abuse, or even execution. Despite these circumstances, Yemeni Christians have become bolder in their outreach efforts. Even though it is still extremely dangerous to be identified as a Christian, they must reach out in creative ways that are bold and wise. Small but steady numbers of Yemenis are continually being added to the body in Christ, and more are gaining interest as the influence of Christian media grows. It's a good way to use social media. (laughs) Would you pray with me for the persecuted church in Yemen? Father God, bring stability to this country that has suffered so much conflict. Protect those believers who trust you in secret. Draw close to them and remind them of your love. Provide for people living in poverty and give them a sufficient share of the emergency aid. Bring reconciliation to the factions in conflict and restore peace to this land. Strengthen the secret church. Amen.